Welcome to the RCC Points of View podcast, brought to you by the Scottish Residential Childcare Workers Online Forum. In this episode, I talk to a forensic psychologist who works within the Australian field of child and youth care. Amongst other things, we discuss the similarities and differences of doing RCC in both countries. Alongside this, we explore the similar challenges faced by those who share the RCC life space. Themes discussed include factors that influence placement stability, physical restraint, and how RCC should be best used. I found our discussion thought-provoking and inspiring, and I hope that you do too. So without further ado, please welcome Jenna Bollinger. Hi Jenna, thanks for giving up some of your Saturday, it's really appreciated. Firstly, can you tell me a bit about yourself and your connection to residential childcare? Sure. Um, I'm a forensic psychologist in New South Wales in Australia. Uh, I have been involved with residential care from probably 2010 or 2011. I first got a job as a youth worker, as a casual youth worker, when I was still studying and I didn't know what it was at all. So I was kind of thrown into the deep end when I had a bit of a training day and then I got a shift at a house. Fortunately, there were no kids in the house that day. So it was a very easy first shift. But nonetheless, after the first shift, I quit my job at a restaurant and I never went back. And I've pretty much been involved in residential care since. I worked as a youth worker for probably 18 months or two years while I finished off my master's. And then I managed to get a job at the same organisation as a psychologist um, where I found that I was much better placed. I found that I was much better equipped as a psychologist than I was as a youth worker. And I think that's because I had time to study and learn. I had mentors, I had teachers that could help me understand trauma and help me understand what we were seeing in the houses. Whereas a youth worker, I was not good. I was, I was, I was, I was not good, wasn't. Yeah. And, and typically, typically in Australia, in terms of the, the term youth worker, what does that cover mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, Oof. role, qualification? Uh, know, well, now... Now, to be a youth worker, you need to have a certificate four, which is a qualif- which is a TAFE qualification, um, which is like a technical college, essentially. Yeah. Um, I, I couldn't tell you exactly what that entails, um, but I but I, I don't know how long it takes to get one. But it's a it's a it's a practical qualification. So there are a series of modules that you have to pass where you uh, learn about what is involved with with doing the work of a, of a youth worker. Uh, I think it, it depends on the on the TAFE that you go to and what they offer. Um, I know in I know in Melbourne in Victoria they have specific certificates in residential care that that are very good and they've got specific ones for youth work. But I think youth work covers more generally working in residential care, working with young people you know, as a, as a caseworker and um, 
you know, in more general settings rather than specifically in residential care. But I wouldn't be prepared to swear to that. Right, okay. No, that, that, that's, a, that's very interesting. In respect of, you know, that you'd mentioned a bit about when you changed roles, how difficult was that for your colleagues, for you to be having been, like, at one point a youth worker, and then the next yeah. point, uh, you know, you're the psychologist. How, how, how was that for them? Well, look, no one said anything. No one said anything to me. No one took issue with me, though everyone was very, very good. Everyone knew that I was studying when I was working with them. And I think I, I, think I remember it feeling a bit awkward initially. I, I, I felt a bit awkward, certainly. But actually, I think it was a really good thing. It worked really well because I already knew everyone. I had relationships with everyone. I already knew the young people that we worked with. I had relationships with them. I knew how the computers worked. I knew how to find the files. You know, it actually was was an easier process than if I had just come in uh, not knowing anything at all. I think it was a little bit awkward initially as I transitioned to a new role, but Eventually, I did that for longer than I was ever a youth worker, and I did it full time, whereas I was only ever a youth worker casually. So I think it, it didn't take very long to transition into a different position. Yeah, no, I, I think that will resonate quite, um, quite well with a lot of people because, you know, I, I've experienced that recently, you know, about, about having to come into a new setting, a new workplace, and not knowing where the files are, and it's a massive help if you if you know the kind of yeah, <laughs> yeah um, absolutely. So, yeah, I, I, and I was just thinking there in respect of you know in the UK, residential care still got that strap line of being the placement of last resort. Uh, you know, a Cinderella service, all the kind of you know strap lines you always hear about. What where, where does where's residential care located within the child welfare system in Australia? Yeah, exactly the same. Is it the same? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, in terms of, in the UK, there's, there's a kind of mixture of, like, kind of like local government organisations provide care. There is uh, the private sector and there's the charitable and third sector. How does it look in Australia? So, um, out-of-home care is managed by the individual states and territories. And they typically will then fund non-government organisations, so not-for-profits, to actually do the caring. So the, the, the department, which differs in, from state to state, um, in New South Wales, it's the Department of Communities and Justice. Uh, in Victoria, it's DHHS. Um, I don't know what that stands for. Um, it's, it's different. It's different in each state. Um, and so though the, the department then will sometimes hold case management of some of the young people. Otherwise, they will outsource that to the NGO as well. So, uh, so that kind of depends on the young person and it depends on, it probably depends state to state a little bit. Uh, as far as I'm aware, all the different states and territories do that. None of them have it anymore that the department does the caring role. Uh, I think Tasmania was the most recent one to come on board with that. But it, residential care is very much a placement of last resort here. And it is actually Australia has one of the lowest rates of use of residential care in the world. So yeah. we 
uh, I, th I think the UK is sitting at about 14%, I think. Right. Uh, in Australia, we're at five. So it's really, really low. It's a really low percentage. I think in all of Australia, there's just about two and a half thousand young people in residential care. Um, and that's, yeah, because it is absolutely a placement of last resort. Okay, so in terms of some of your you know, research, can you tell me a bit about some of the stuff you've been involved in and what you're passionate about in respect to uh, you know, looking at residential care that's use and what your, what your kind of thoughts are and you know, initial kind of, uh, findings? Yeah, absolutely. Anyone who wants to know more can listen to the USAV conference later on in the year. I'll be presenting, I'll be recording it this weekend, actually. Um, Yes, yes. So my research is looking at placement stability in residential care. My research has been uh, been locked into New South Wales, but I suspect the findings will be fairly generally applicable. But my research has really taken a, a close look at what stability means in residential care. So if we look at the literature, and I could talk about it all day, my watch, I'll really put it into a nutshell. If we look at the literature, the placement stability literature has essentially assumed that a child is stable if they have few placements and they're unstable if they have many placements. On the surface of it, that makes sense, right? But actually, what I think is that if a child is in one placement, that means that they've had one placement. If they've had 50 placements, that means they've had 50 placements. And actually that doesn't communicate anything about how connected they feel to that placement. And when we talk about it in residential care, it's much, much more complicated because they could be in one placement, but if they've got a rotating roster of five staff, but that rotating roster of five staff has changed three times, then they have no consistency of caregiver. If they have the other young people in the house change at the drop of a hat, then there's no consistency of who they're going to be living with. Because of the nature of residential care, their staff member who's on shift today could call in sick. And so they actually have no idea who's going to be looking after them today. They can't know that. Whereas in foster care, some of that stuff is a little bit more stable by nature because you don't get sick leave from your family. And so when we're talking about stability in residential care, we need to look at it much more closely. We need to look at it in a much more nuanced way because we need to figure out what elements would contribute to a young person feeling stable in an environment that is inherently unstable because we can't take away sick leave from staff. We can't take away that they can take annual leave. We can't stop young people being moved. We can't, well, we can a little bit, but we can't completely because sometimes they uh, you know, they're restored home. Sometimes they age out. Sometimes a magistrate will say that person can't live there anymore. So we can't stop it completely. And so we need to understand what actually constitutes a feeling of stability for a young person in residential care. And so my research is looking at that uh, by speaking to staff and young people who uh, have lived and worked in residential care. Mm -hmm. And so how far on are you in respect of that research? Where are you in your PhD? I am so close to submitting. I'm so ready. Right. Uh, my poor supervisors are trapped into reading it now, the whole thing. 
all 85,000 words of it. They have to read it. I feel very sorry uh-huh. for them. But once uh-huh. the, but, I, but, I, but it's, it's pretty much done now. We're right at the end. Right, that's great. And then I would imagine that once that's, you know, you've been through that process in terms of your, your PhD thesis, that well, you kind of like condense, we make that, you know, in a different kind of format so it can be, you know, accessible to those in direct practice. Uh, or are you any kind of thoughts about that, what you'll do with that actual bit of research? Yeah. Well, so I have been, um, I have tried to present at a bunch of conferences along the way. Uh, I've also put out a couple of blog posts along the way that um, that are on, well, they're somewhere, you think they're on Twitter, you can see them there. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah I, I've published a couple of papers and um, I'm putting one together at the moment for the Scottish Journal of Residential Childcare. And uh-huh. um, so there'll be there'll be a few there'll be a few papers that get published along the way um, that look at different elements of it. And oh, I'm working on a book chapter as well. So it'll be it'll be out there. The information will be out there uh, as we can That's, do it. Yeah, and it's really important that that you know, people get access to it so they can make really good use uh, of the research because that'll impact on you know, how residential is used. So, in respect to the the, the you know the million dollar question, how you know, what what is it you know in terms of placement stability, in terms of your findings, how should residential be used in a utopian world? Oh, you know what I I don't know that I have a very popular opinion about that, but I think residential care should be a placement of first choice, not for everyone, but for some people, I think it should be absolutely the preference. I think for some young people being in foster care is awful it's hard it's too attachment rich they have to fit in with the family rather than being fit around you know and I don't I don't know how anyone could make the argument that a child is better off having 13 20 50 broken placements than one stable residential care placement I don't know how anyone makes that argument, but they do. They do. One of the people I interviewed had 32 foster care placements before going into residential care where he had one placement for four years. And I I don't know how we make that argument that residential care is a bad placement choice when, I I mean, I, I get that theoretically foster care is probably a better bet but if that's not a good fit then it's not a better placement and if we're working from a child-centered model then we should be looking at what the individual needs and what they require from a placement and how do we best meet that need and you know one of the things that came up from the young people that I interviewed was that the ability to have ongoing contact with the staff that they worked with and that they lived with was really important, which tells me that the relationships formed in residential care, sometimes, not all the time, but those relationships are actually incredibly deep and incredibly meaningful. A lot of them spoke about, you know, the staff have met their children and have been involved with their families and have been there when their children were born even. You know, these relationships are deep and meaningful and shouldn't be 
cast off as being, well, they're just paid staff, so it doesn't matter. They're very real and very, very important. And I think for some young people, the, the nature of foster care makes that placement just too challenging. It's too yeah. challenging. And, and I think for the foster carers, it's too challenging to have someone who is incredibly destabilised and dysregulated in their home Whereas uh, in residential care, it can be managed so much more effectively and they can be taught skills because the staff can be better regulated because maybe because they can go home, because they've got their team leader there, because they've got, you know, constant, theoretically, supervision available to them in theory. Yeah. Not always in practice, of course, but in theory, it should be available to them. And so maybe they're better equipped to handle those presentations so that the outcomes can be much better. And, you know, we there's this constant talk that people in residential care have worse outcomes, but I don't know that that's actually true. I'm not convinced that that's borne out by the literature and my literature review will agree with me, which is why yeah. it was my opinion. But <laughs> the research actually shows that residential care can be a really good placement. It can be a really good choice. It can have really good outcomes, particularly when we're looking at therapeutic care. When we yeah. can do therapeutic care well, we typically get good outcomes. And the, the, the leaving care research shows us that kids in out-of-home care gener generally do worse than kids who are not in out-of-home care. And mm -hmm. that's, that, is, that seems to be a fact and it seems to be universal and it seems to be regardless of how residential care is done even in countries that have huge proportions of their young people in residential care, like in Israel, where it's 80% are in residential care, they're out of home care. Uh, you still do worse than non out of home care kids. But basically none of that research is pulled apart for different types of out of home care. And yeah. the ones that do don't typically show that residential care does worse. So yeah. I think it's a good choice, a good placement option when it's carefully considered, carefully chosen and well done. Yeah, so on that, I suppose, thinking about some of the, the recent kind of books that have been published, so Karen Friesman has published a book about uh, being a trauma-informed organisation, for example. Mm. You know. Yes. So in terms of how the, the residential house looks, you know, from your perspective, to do good quality therapeutic residential care, what components are required to make that house as close to a home for a child as, as you possibly can? Well, I think, you know, there's all, the, there's all the very basic things, like it needs to look like a home, right? There needs to be food in the cupboards, there needs to be pictures on the walls, there needs to be rugs on the floor, there needs to be nice furniture that people want to sit in there needs to be all of those things and fair enough they may get ruined and then we replace them right we paint the walls we make them look nice it feels like a place people want to live and then we fix it if it needs to be fixed but what I think is also much more important than any of that is that we have a team that is consistent that is known to the young people known to each other who work in consistent ways and what is also needed is that those staff are well taken care of 
they need to be supported they need to be supervised and and i mean that in a in a sense of they need to be given supervision so they can talk through their issues they can talk through their worries they can be given training when they need it that they are supported and treated well so that they are able to do their work because it's incredibly hard work and it's incredibly important work and they need to be able to do it well so we need to have good staff who are taken care of and we need to have staff who are trained in trauma-informed practices who are trained to understand at its most basic and most complex levels what is trauma and what is attachment trauma in particular how does that play out what is complex trauma how do we see that and how does it play out in the relationships that we are dealing with you know we can have any anyone who knows anything about trauma will talk to you about the fight or flight response they can talk about the window of tolerance all of those things which are super important but what is also really important is to understand about the impact of relational trauma and how that plays out in those relationships so that when a child is starting to to stabilize and feel more comfortable what happens within those relationships and how we cope when that child then wants to push away those relationships when they need to reject those staff members when they feel that their time is coming to an end in a placement because every other placement has ended and so they're trying to break it down how do we respond to that in a way that doesn't reinforce that that doesn't play into those patterns that doesn't play into those scripts how do we do that in a way that is healing and those things are incredibly important and i think those are the keys to doing really good therapeutic care yeah and on that see in terms of placement stability is there any kind of magic magic number in terms of you know the, the amount of children and young people in the house does that matter or is it something else i don't know that it i don't know that that is i mean there's probably a point at which it's a bit ridiculous um mm -hmm. and i mean in, in in new south wales we don't typically have more than four two to four is pretty standard and I think I think some staff would say that two is is better than four. That once you're getting to four, it's it's very difficult. Um, but I don't know that there's I I don't know that there's a number of how many there needs to be. Probably what there needs to be is good matching, so that the young people that are placed together are reasonably good fits to live together. And if we can do yeah. that well, then we'll have better outcomes. And so there's probably uh, that pro the magic number probably depends on the presentation. If you've got very complex children, then fewer is better. If you've got less complex children, then it's not that fewer is, that more is better, but more is maybe not problematic. Uh, no, that's a great point. In respect, just going back to the kind of whole training aspect and you know looking at it through that kind of lens would you say qualifications are important and you know in an ideal world what type of kind of kind of like qualification would a residential child care worker have well um there's a 
few different important points there. I think qualifications are important to a point. I think they're important in the sense that understanding trauma is not something you can just pick up. I think it's something that you need to learn and learning about it is important. Some people respond naturally in a very trauma-informed way, but uh, a lot of us don't. And a lot of us get to a point where we, we don't handle it well. And so we need to be reminded of the theories and we need to, we need to understand in a, in a technical way what is going on so that we can determine how to respond. Uh, and we can't just do that naturally a lot of the time. Um, and I think qualifications are important in, in terms of what they represent a lot of the time in the sense that what I think makes a good residential care worker is someone who is willing to learn and take on new information and who is willing to um, discover new things and try new approaches. And I think that those are really important qualities. And so someone who is willing to get qualifications probably has some of those qualities, as opposed to someone who would say, I'm not willing to do that. I, I, I already know everything. I don't need to learn anything else. Um, what is the ideal qualification? I know in a lot of, in a lot of places that, the, that residential care workers have social work degrees as a minimum standard. Um, I don't know if they get better outcomes because no one does outcome studies very often. So I don't know if that is better. Um, I'd say we'd have to fund it better if we were going to ask for those minimum requirements. Um, we probably should fund it better anyway. But um, I guess that the question is, do you get better outcomes if you've got more qualified staff? If you do, then more qualifications are better. If you don't get better outcomes, then maybe not so much. But none does the research. Yeah, I, you know, it's, it's quite patchy in terms of the research. Um, and it really, I think emotion seems, seems to kind of drive that, you know, question a lot of the times, especially, you know, when, with those the, with lived experience who you know it's, it's great points people have made about you know the, the authenticness of the, the care worker and really that that's the most important thing the, the value base and that's what comes through this came through the Scottish National Care Review and also within the promise report that's currently just been you know getting rolled out um so mm. that, that that's what's came through kind of hard and fast is that but about you know, you know something, yeah, qualifications, you know, basically what we get is what really is important to us and that's the, the care and authenticness of care. Um, I think both need to go hand in hand, to be honest with you, if you been in direct practice, um, that's my opinion and, you know, I've never had that. Uh, and the, the whole status stuff kind of matters when you're advocating for children and young people as well. Um, but it's really interesting to get your, your view on that as well, especially... From the kind of Australian kind of context, um, so th thanks very much for that. So I was just kind of Look, thinking about. I agree about, with you. Yeah. Sorry, I agree with you hundred percent that the genuineness of care is, 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 it has to be the most important. But that care has to be appropriate, and it has to be the the right kind of care. You can show someone genuine care by shouting at them because we care so much, and that's not good, but. Mm -hmm. So, but the genuineness of the care 
is absolutely important. And that came through in my research as well, that the young people needed to feel that the staff were not just there because they were paid. That's obviously necessary. We need to pay staff. But the young people wanted to feel that their staff cared and loved them. And, and the staff themselves said that too, that, the, that they needed to be there for the right reasons, that they needed to be there because they wanted to make a difference, that they cared genuinely, even though they also got paid, that, those, that the care had to be there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So can I move it on now to a, quite a difficult subject matter? And actually, what I can often describe as the kind of dark side of care, you know, the, 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 the horrible stuff that's really engulfed the sector. And it really doesn't, it doesn't matter what country you're in, you know, whether it's Australia, England, Scotland, Ireland, this, you know, the, 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 the abuse inquiries, this, you know, the, the abuse discourse, it really is quite prominent in every country and it's got very similar threads, you know, you know, it's, it's almost identical. So in respect to that, in terms of physical abuse, you know, and, you know, physical restraint gone wrong, you know, that's something that's been quite kind of prominent as well. And in, in your experience of working as a youth worker, did you see much physical restraint? No. No? None. No. None. I never saw any of it. Um, I certainly would never use it. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm too small to want to try. Uh, right, okay. But no, I never, I ne- I've never, I haven't, my the agency that I worked for the organization I worked for uh, did some training where there was a component of how to do physical restraint mm-hmm. um, but any kind of restrictive practice had to be approved and had to be written into the plans for each child mm-hmm. as a psychologist I never wrote any restrictive practices into the plans that involved restraint I never would um, I think that, I mean, probably there comes a point where it might be necessary if a child is showing a very real and immediate risk of significant harm to themselves or someone else. You know, if someone's mm-hmm. about to run in front of a, a truck that's coming towards them, it, could, it would be a very reasonable response, I think, to pull them back from that. But I, I think it's, some, it's, a, it's something that has to be so carefully thought through and so carefully thought out and, uh, and it needs to be talked about afterwards very yeah. clearly with yeah. all of the important players. But in general, I don't think it has a place. I don't think, I don't think that using your size and strength against someone who has been traumatised is ever okay, yeah. I think, using it for them potentially. Like I said, if they're about to walk in front of the bus, then mm. that, that, that's a, potentially different. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think probably most people would do that without thinking about it, whether it's the right thing or wrong thing. But I don't think it's ever okay to use your size and strength against someone. Yeah. So in Scotland, uh, it's been quite a prominent discussion point. Uh, it currently is quite alive. Uh, discussion point in the sector, you know, there's various working parties and, and working groups in place uh, asking that question, you know, about physical restraint because it, it has engulfed the sector for years. 
and in one of the previous podcasts, uh, E. Milligan, Doctor E. Milligan, you know, suggested that to eradicate physical restraint, you need to look at the culture within the country, you know, the actual country. So Scotland, in many respects, is deemed to be a violent country. And I was just wondering, Australia, what would you say it's a violent country? You know, in terms of the you know, the whole kind of how people live their lives and you know, everything that supports that, would you say? What's your yeah, thoughts on I, that? I don't know. To be honest, I'm trying to think because my experience is no. I I I have been very fortunate to have made it through all of these years and not experience anyone using any violence against me and never having witnessed any violence being used against anyone. But, uh, I mean, the domestic violence statistics would certainly disagree with me. You know, we, tip, we seem to have an average of one, one woman a week being, being killed um, with, in some sort of domestic relationship or, or known to the person who has killed her uh, we, we do have a problem with that absolutely we have recently had uh, a royal commission into institutionalized sexual abuse that seems to have been a very real focus for us and there's been a series of uh, research papers that have been undertaken um, that have looked at residential care and institutionalised mm -hmm. sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think for us, that seems to have been a greater problem recently. Uh, well, recently and historically, but that's been a focus for us. I know in you know, the latter part of the 20th century that Australia did move away from institutionalized care to being family-based because of allegations of abuse. I know in South Australia, there, have, there was a, an inquiry that happened um, on the back of a man being uh, accused and subsequently convicted of very, very serious child sexual abuse charges. Um, and so that seems to be uh, a problem for us. Okay. Perhaps more uh, so than physical restraint, physical abuse. Yeah, and that's very interesting. I think for, for me, it'd be interesting to compare in terms of the two countries mm. about physical restraint, you know, because yeah. if, it's, if it's very small in Australia um, and it's, you know, there's still kind of concerns about it in the UK, um, it'd be really interesting to see, but, you know, what, what, where the differences are mm. respect of which, which which enables that to be far less in Australia, you know. So that, that, that's interesting. And then the sexual abuse stuff is is huge and complex. And just kind of very briefly, was there anything really any sort of findings that came from the, those published papers that would, that would suggest here's what we need to do to you know, essentially safeguard well, <laughs> children better. Uh, well, I mean, the Victor the South Australian inquiry said we should get rid of residential care. Um, uh -huh. But actually, in interestingly, in South Australia at the time, they seemed to have very, very young children in residential care, uh, babies, six-month-old babies, um, uh, and, and so on. So very, very young children. 
Uh, and so I think that they have really tightened up on what age people can be in New South Wales. It's 12 uh, and you can, you can get children younger than that with like a special dispensation, but in general it's 12 and up. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think there is a simple answer to that at all. Uh, I mean, obviously we've got working with children checks, we've got, you know, national criminal record checks and all of those sorts of things that try and limit it. Um, but, you know, that, I, don't, I don't know how much that does. But I, I don't think that there is a simple answer to that. I think, I, I think what has come out in Scotland is probably exactly the thing that needs to come out here, that we need an entire cultural shift and we need to, you know, be supervising better. We need to be... Yeah doing a better job and, and for me i think it's really important that children and young people get independent advocacy as well so that you know yes. if they're living in a residential child care setting or foster care that some of the independents come to see these children and young people on a regular 100%. basis that, that that for me is crucial and we, we use certainly a cracking charity in scotland called who cares uh, and others such as bernardo's um, who come in and do a, do a fantastic job to, to, to put up you know, that important safeguard in place. Um, yeah. so that, that's, that, that's very interesting uh, and very new information for me because I was very surprised, to be honest with you, respect <laughs> the whole, you know, your, your observation about physical restraint, that, you know, it, it never happened in practice when you were in practice, which is, I think that the, the number of kids for me, really helps with that. So if you get, you know, two, three. Mm -hmm. So in Scotland, typically in a residential house, you've got six children. You know, so oh, that, wow. that's, that's a lot. Yeah, it's quite a, quite a, you know, quite a big number, and sometimes more than that. So I know in a previous uh, local authority, it's eight children. You know, in a house. So you can see how that would impact yes. culturally on, you know, how care and support is is provided. Um, yes. So, so, uh, so it's it's probably very interesting for yourself to look into you know Scotland and how residential care is, is done. And to be fair, it's done really well. But there's some stuff that I think could really you know can get kind of improved upon, especially that bit about as you say matching. I think matching is crucial. Um, mm. and, and if that's done kind of authentically, will really help the quality of care and support. So I suppose this question is a, a bit of a, you know looking into the future question, uh, and it's a bit about if you could go back and give yourself a bit of advice in your professional life when you first started, what would that be and how would that, you know, support your practice just now? Well, I think, I think the best advice, if I could have gone back right to the beginning, my advice would have been to learn more about trauma more quickly and to read more and understand more. And I think that would have, that would have helped me be a better youth worker. I said I wasn't very good at it because I didn't understand. And so I so I was often just I was just a bit frightened to sometimes and and just a bit just there, really. I just show up, show up to work. And I, I I don't know that I did a whole lot of good in that in that work. And I think if I'd understood trauma better. I would have been better equipped to do a good job and to do good. And I may have liked it better in the same way. Um, and I think, 
I, I think that that's the best bit of advice I could have given myself. And I, 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 don't, I don't know that there's, there's much else that I, I would have changed. I've really enjoyed my career path. And besides learning more, then learning more and understanding more and, uh, I don't know, starting my PhD quicker, that would have been good. <laughs> and I could have finished it quicker. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, absolutely. Um, so uh, just, I suppose, in Scotland, the, the, the promise speaks about, the, you know, supporting the workforce. And what you're saying really does fit neatly with that. A bit of trauma-informed mm-hmm. training, you know, they, they use like a strap line of holding a hand of those who hold a hand, you know. And I think yeah. that's something that in Scotland, it's, it's crucial we get that right, you know, moving forward. And the promise is quite an aspirational document. And I know there's a, a lot of, you know, hope that it comes to fruition, you know, and, and within 10 years, you know, how young people are cared for and their families looks mm. so much different. So finally, the final question. Your PhD is nearly finished. What do you hope to be doing in five years' time? Where do you hope to be? I honestly don't know. I don't know because, you know, I had I had a baby after I'd started my PhD. And so I've been juggling, looking after her. I've been juggling. Um, she's four. So she's, she's quite big now. But I've been juggling looking after her. I've been juggling working. I've been juggling my PhD um, and my mother was very, very sick and, and she died at the end of last year. So oh. I, I feel like I haven't had a moment to breathe, to be honest, for the last years. And so I would like the chance to just do my work, probably <laughs> do, do work and, you know, publish some papers, you know, maybe do some, you know, get these book chapters done and, um, I, I mean, I really, I like doing research and I would probably quite like to keep doing that in some, in some respect. Um, as I think the question that I asked is, is the very, very beginning of the conversation. It's by no means the end. It's just, it's the, you know, the opening gambit, the opening gambit really to the yeah. conversation. And so there's so many more questions to ask. So probably do that. Um, and hope that I can help inform some of those policy and practice things. Um, talk, yeah. you know, with people, with organisations, and be able to implement some some practice based on the findings that we get. You know, that um, the organisation I work for at the moment is fantastic. It's called Nightlamp, and they consult with out of home care organisations you know, around Australia, really, mostly on the eastern eastern side. But, um, uh, and so we can work with different out-of-home care organisations. And mm-hmm. so hopefully the more questions I can answer, the better job I can do of helping. And I think that's what I want to do for the next five years. I want to be yeah. helpful. And, and just listening to what you're saying in terms of, you know, your, your- personal challenges and how you've mm. had a had a baby she's now four and really sorry to hear about your mum as well and you still Thanks. managed to kind of you know um get through your phd work run a house you know all that kind of stuff so it's really you know that that's an aspirational thing to hear about you know 
Um, and, and then you've got your the article article going to come out in the Scottish Journal of Residence Childcare, which we really look forward to reading as well. Uh, and you know, it's really I think it's great having somebody like yourself connected to residential care. Uh, and I'm mm. delighted to have made that contact with you, you know, through, I think it was initially through Twitter. Um, which I think really so. Just shows, <laughs> yep, so it really just shows the power of Twitter as well and social media. I know. In a positive, yeah. in a, a, you know, through like a positive, kind of, um, kind of looking at it through a positive lens. Uh, so, Jenna, really, thank you very much for taking part. And Oh, thank I, you I'm, so much for having me. No, for, for me, it's really, it's, uh, it's been providing me for a lot of food for thought uh, and I'm really kind of doing a lot of problem posing right now in my mind so thanks once again oh thank you so much it's been such a pleasure I'll uh, I'll look forward to talking to you again soon thank you so much to Jenna for taking part in the podcast it was interesting to hear about the Australian context in respect to some of the similarities within both countries. It was also interesting to hear about the differences too. For example, the sheer lack of children and young people who reside within the residential setting within Australia, whilst in comparison within Scotland, the percentage is quite high. Similar total numbers of children within the residential setting, however, a very different demographic and population size exists. As always, if you found the podcast interesting, please share it across your networks, and if you'd like to take part, do get in touch. Thank you very much.